The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. So again, we're going to start in Acts 11. Um, That's on page 1018 in the Blue Bibles if you have one of those. And so we'll start in verse 1 in a second, but I also want to mention we're going to spend a good bit of time in Romans chapter 1 this morning. That's going to be on page 1040 of the Blue Bibles if you want to go ahead and mark that as well. For now, the story of Acts 11 is, is really a continuation of what took place in Acts chapter 10. And last Sunday, Trevor preached on that story, the story of a guy named Cornelius. He was a centurion. And he was what we would call a Gentile God-fearer. Okay? He was not a Jew. He was not a Jew, but he still worshipped Israel's God. And we saw also in Acts 10 that Cornelius had a vision from the Lord. Okay? A vision where an angel to- told Cornelius to send for the apostle Peter. And then a day later, the apostle Peter also has a vision. And then by the time you get to the end of chapter 10, Peter has gone to Cornelius' home And the Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius and his household just the same as it fell on the Jewish believers in Acts chapter 2. And the larger point that Trevor was seeking to make last week was that both Jews and Gentiles have been welcomed in to the family of God. And that all people who trust in Jesus and who turn from their sin are adopted into God's family regardless of their ethnic background, their social status, or anything else. And then this brings us to our passage today. If you look with me at verse 1, you're going to see that some Jewish Christians are questioning the fact that Peter went to Cornelius' home. Look at verse 1. It says, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them. Now the circumcision party That's referring to some Jewish believers who were especially zealous for the Old Testament law. And these brothers likely insisted that there should be no social interaction whatsoever between Jews and Gentiles. And they insisted that on the basis of Old Testament law. The Gentiles were considered to be unclean. And Trevor talked about that last week. But as a result, these Jewish Christians believe that any Gentile... okay would have to abide by Old Testament law, the food laws, and that male Gentiles would therefore also need to be circumcised, okay, if they were going to follow Christ. And if you're like me, we might wonder, why do these Jewish Christians make such a big deal about circumcision and about the food laws? But try just for a minute to put yourself in the shoes of these Jewish Christians in this time period. Because at this time, again, Christianity is seen by many as a movement that's just coming out of Judaism, okay? Jesus was a Jew. His disciples were Jews, okay? And Jews, and presumably these Jewish Christians, have kept these laws that are rooted in the Jewish scriptures for a thousand years. There's a commentator, his name is Craig Keener. I'll quote briefly or paraphrase what he said. I think it's helpful. He says, imagine how shocking this narrative would be in the first century Jewish context. Because what you basically have here and what was just read from Acts 11 is you have a Galilean fisherman, Peter, claiming on the basis of his dream and an interpretation of that dream that God has reversed 1,000 years of teaching from Scripture. Like that's how serious and what a big deal this is because truly up to this point, literally up until that very point, 
no one had any reason to believe that Gentiles would not have to keep those laws. Okay? And so this is why the Jewish Christians are upset. But now listen to Peter's response. Look at verse 4 in your Bibles. It says, Peter began and he explained it to them in order. He said, I was in the city of Joppa praying. And in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, Peter says, and all was drawn up again into heaven. As you can see, Peter's own inner turmoil at the thought of eating food that he had always known to be unclean. It's like, no, Lord, I can't eat that. Okay, imagine that. And when you see how Peter responded to the initial vision, you can at least understand a little bit why some of the Jewish believers reacted the way that he did. Okay? But God is doing something, and Trevor spoke about this last week. God is doing something okay, that Peter and pious Jews, they would not have expected this. But the reality is that God has the right and the ability to make things clean, okay, if he wants to make them clean. And then if he does that, we should not call them common. But if we're honest, if I'm honest with you, we oftentimes have a hard time grasping or understanding when God does things different from what we expect or what we would think is good or right And perhaps that's one reason why Peter sees this vision three times. And also, guys, remember, Luke is the one who is writing the book of Acts, okay? And perhaps it's partly our difficulty in grasping these truths. Maybe that's why Luke decided to not only record the event in chapter 10, but then he also records it again, reiterates it again in chapter 11. Luke deems this to be very important. Now let's look back at our passage. Look at verse 11 with me. And behold, at that very moment, Peter says... Three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction, no distinction between Jew and Gentile. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. Now again, Trevor pointed out last week how you can clearly see that God is the one who is orchestrating these events. Cornelius has a vision. Peter also has a vision. And God works through both of those visions to accomplish all of God's purposes. God is making clear that the good news is available to all people, to both Jews and Gentiles. But then look again specifically at verse 11. As soon as Peter finished seeing the vision, at that very moment, three men arrived. Guys, this is, this is not a coincidence. This is God's doing. This is not something, certainly not something that Peter thought up. It's not something that he had planned. But God is doing this and Peter is simply telling us what it is that God has done. Now look at verse 12. Again, look at verse 12. The Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers accompanied me. Now, Peter makes it known that six brothers are with him. The account in chapter 10 just told us some, but here Peter is very specific to say six. Okay? Now, we don't know exactly why six, but here's one thing that we can know. All right? When it comes to Old Testament law, um, there are a certain number of witnesses that would be required. Deuteronomy 17.6 states that a person may be put to death on the evidence of two or three witnesses, okay? But here, in this case, we have two, if not three times the amount of witnesses that were required to verify something is true. 
This is showing here, again, this is not just Peter's testimony or something he came up with. There is evidence here, substantial evidence for what God has done in this passage. Now look back at your Bibles. Look at verse 13. We're going to keep moving forward. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa, bring Simon who's called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And so by the time you get to the end of verse 17 here, excuse me, Peter is trying to make super clear that Gentile believers, uncircumcised Gentile believers, have been included in the family of God. And they're included as part of the people of God, not because they became circumcised, not because they kept these food laws, but because of the work of the Spirit. Okay? This is, as Trevor mentioned last week, a Gentile Pentecost that's taking place here. Cornelius and his household, they began speaking in tongues, okay? which is exactly what happened to the Jewish believers in Acts chapter 2. Now, why speaking in tongues? That signifies that this is God's doing. This is not something that man has done on his own. So much so that by the time you get to verse 18 in your Bibles, if you'll look there, even Peter's critics recognize what's happening here. Look at verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. And every time I've read that particular verse over the past day or two, I cannot help but smile and think, Guys, this, like I am a Gentile. And most every single person in this room, we are Gentiles. This is God welcoming us into his family. Okay? That's what's going on in this passage. But, but also, praise the Lord for the humble response of those who were questioning Peter. Like, they could have persisted in their own beliefs and said, no, Gentile believers, they still have to insist or still, still have to abide by Jewish traditions. And some will claim that even later on when we get to Acts 15. But here, they recognize God has granted the Gentiles repentance that leads to life. They glorify God, making much of what he has done. So let's summarize quickly. Here's what's happened so far. From the passage last week as well as this week, God has welcomed Gentile believers into the church without the requirement of circumcision and without the requirement of keeping the food laws. Okay. Another commentator I read this week said, what God has made clear here is that there are no unclean people. And that's exactly what Peter said in Acts chapter 10 when he said, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. The takeaway point, God accepts Jews and Gentiles who place their trust in the finished work of Jesus. But in light of this reality, and here's where we're in a, in a few minutes we're going to shift to Romans, in light of this reality, what is our responsibility as Christians today? As Christians today, sitting in this sanctuary at Ridgewood Church in Greer, what is our responsibility? And then just how urgent is that responsibility? Okay. 
That's what we're going to turn the rest of our attention to. We're going to look at Acts 11:13 in one more second. But think about what God has called us to and what we refer to as the Great Commission. Okay? This is Matthew chapter 28. You don't have to turn there. But Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, to Jesus. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's Jesus' command to us today. That's what drives our desire to be on mission here in Greer. That's what drives our, our desire to support other missionaries throughout the world. But now this is where I want you to look back, if you would, at verses 13 and 14. Okay, Acts eleven thirteen, And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa, And bring Simon, who's called Peter. And now listen closely to verse 14. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. You and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell. Now here's the question we need to consider when we read these verses. At what point was Cornelius actually saved? At what point is he filled with the Spirit? Or today, we would say, at what point would he rightly be considered a Christian? That's what I want us to focus on, okay? Now... You can turn here if you like. We're going to go to Romans 1 in a second. But in Acts chapter 10, verse 2, I want you to listen to the description of Cornelius again. In Acts chapter 10, verse 2. Here's how Cornelius is referred to. He is said to be a, quote, devout man. He fears God. He gives alms generously. And he prays continually to God. This is a good guy, okay? He is a... Again, we said a Gentile God-fearer. He respected and sought to worship Israel's God. But does that mean that he was already a believer in Christ? Does that mean that he was already saved? Now, if we looked at the rest of the story, I think that answer would become clear. Verses 4 and 5 in chapter 10, Cornelius is told to send for Peter. Later on, Peter ends up coming to his home. Cornelius thanks Peter for coming. And by the time you get back to our passage, Acts 11 Verse 14, I think it becomes very clear. Look at the details. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. The reason that God sent the vision to Cornelius in the first place for Peter to come was because Cornelius and his household were not yet saved. They were God-fearers, okay? He was a good guy. He was praying continually, but he was not yet saved until Peter brought the gospel to him. And in fact, and this is what we'll see in Romans 1, he could not have been saved unless and until Peter or someone else actually proclaimed the gospel. That's when the Spirit falls, after Peter begins speaking. Now, again, I promise we're going to move to Romans 1 in a minute, but think back to just a few weeks ago when we studied Roman, not Romans, Acts chapter 8 together, okay? That's the story of the Ethiopian eunuch, okay? Philip, another one of the disciples, is told by the Spirit to go to this Ethiopian who's sitting in his chariot, chariot. He's sitting in his chariot and he is reading from the Old Testament. The Ethiopian is reading from the Old Testament. He's reading from the prophet Isaiah. And then Philip goes up to the chariot and says, Do you understand what you're reading? And Philip, excuse me, the Ethiopian responds, How can I unless someone guides me? And then as the rest of that story makes clear, Philip shares the gospel with him. From that passage, Philip shares the gospel, and then it is at that exact point that the Ethiopian eunuch 
is baptized. It's after Philip comes and explains the gospel to him that the eunuch is saved. Now, here's why this is relevant for us today. If you look at Romans chapter 1, again, Romans 1, we're going to start in verse 18. If you have a blue Bible, that's on page 1040, 1040. But before we actually look at Romans 118, I, I want to tell you kind of what I believed for a long time. The question that comes up here is, what happens to those people who do not hear the gospel of Jesus? And think about it even with Cornelius or with the Ethiopian eunuch. Like, think about this. If the gospel had not come to them, what would have happened to them? They would have still been dead in their sins and they would have perished apart from Christ and they would have spent eternity separated from God. This is what Romans 1 gets to, but what I want to convey before we start reading Romans 1 is that when I was growing up, when it came to thinking about what happens to people in other countries who don't hear the gospel, maybe, maybe you've asked this question before, okay? I thought, okay, and this is what I had heard, that if people did not hear the gospel at least once in this life, that they would either automatically be saved or that sometime immediately after death, God would graciously make known the good news of the gospel to them. Okay? That's what I believed. And here's why I believed it. I believed that because that's frankly what seemed fair to me. Frankly, candidly, it seemed very unfair to me that someone who never heard the gospel, that they could spend eternity separated from God in hell, that seemed harsh, okay? But I want to ask you, like, again, some of you, I think, have probably heard this or maybe even believe this today, but what I want to look at Romans 1 with you for is I want us to see, do either of those beliefs measure up with what we see in Scripture? So now, if you would, look at Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Here's what Paul the Apostle writes. Romans 1, 18 for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now the men that Paul's referring to here, this is all people. God's wrath is rightly revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of all people everywhere. Why? Because by our unrighteousness, look at the text, by our unrighteousness we suppress the truth. Now when Paul says that we suppress the truth, I want to ask you, what does that presume that we know? That presumes that we know the truth, okay? Because you have to know something in order to be able to suppress it. And so how do people know the truth? Look at verse 19 in your, in your Bibles. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Why? Because God has shown it to them. Well, how has he shown it to them? For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Guys, when Paul says that what can be known about God is plain to them or plain to us because God has shown it to them, he's referring to, if you, if you have a bulletin, he's referring to what that short bulletin outline calls general revelation, okay? General revelation. That's what Paul describes in verse 20. Just look at it again. God's invisible attributes, clearly perceived in the creation, in the things that have been made. Guys, all who know, or all people who have minds to comprehend the world around them, they know, please listen, we all know that there is a God. 
and that this world could not come about by random chance. Guys, when you, if you've ever seen a sunset, or when you look at the mountains, or when you listen to music, okay, or when you stare at the stars, or if you ever have contemplated the infinite complexity of the human body, okay, the fact that we were able to get in a car and come here this morning and walk into this building, that we are sitting here, that we have ears to listen, that we have eyes to see, we have a nose to smell, that we can act, that we can think. When we consider all of these things, it is impossible that this happened by accident or random chance. It's impossible. And when we look at creation, then we know that there's a God. And let me say this, if we say that there is not a God, what I am doing, according to Paul, is I am suppressing that truth. Okay? So general revelation refers to what we can observe in creation that shows us there's a God. But it's not just the physical world. Think about this. Okay? We also have a conscience. Even without God's written law, we instinctively know the difference between right and wrong. Do we not? I'll give just one example. Okay? The example of murder. Okay? This were like my class at North Greenville. I'd ask you, raise your hand. How many of you know that murder is wrong? And probably everybody should raise our hand that we know that murder is wrong. But let me honestly ask you, is murder wrong simply because it's illegal? Or because it says it's wrong in the Ten Commandments? What about people who don't have access to the Bible? What about people who have never read the Ten Commandments? Okay? Do they not still instinctively understand that murder is wrong? And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we know that the answer to that question is yes. Well, then how do they know? Okay? How do they know? that? Let me, let me give one more example. First murder that's recorded in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 4. Who kills who? Somebody shout it out. Cain kills Abel. Good, okay? That's more than 2,000 years before the giving of the law in Exodus 20 with the Ten Commandments. But was it wrong, was it a sin for Cain to kill his brother Abel? Like We all know yes, okay? Well, you don't have the written law given yet, so how do they know? How does God then hold Cain accountable? He rightly holds him accountable, but how does he do that? It's because of what we would call the moral law, a law that Paul says in Romans 2 is written on our hearts. You see, from creation, the moral law is present from creation because it is a reflection of God's character. And the law is given out of his character. And here's the deal. Because we are made in God's image, all of us, because we're made in God's image, we instinctively know right from wrong. Okay. Now, two, two quick things. Do you see people today who would say that we don't know the difference between right and wrong, or who would even call things good that we know from God's revelation or evil? The answer to that is also yes, okay? So what do we do with that? What Paul is arguing here is it is not that people don't know the difference between right and wrong. We do know it, and whether this is an individual or an entire society, we are suppressing that truth. It's not that we don't know it, it's that we suppress it. That's why Paul, again... So Romans 2, we don't have to go there, but he argues in Romans 2 that the Gentiles are rightly under God's judgment even though they don't have the Ten Commandments. Why? Because he says, and this again is an important, important way Paul words this, because the law is said to be written on their hearts. And that's the case for every single one of us today. So that's general revelation. 
Knowledge is the God from creation, from our conscience. Now look back at the text, if you would. Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Paul says, so they are without excuse. Now what these words mean is that for everyone who can understand general revelation, they are without excuse. They will, we all, rightly stand under God's judgment as a result of that. Now, we do not have time to go into what I'm about to say in any depth, but I want to make a quick note here. I want to, I've tried to be careful to say those who can comprehend general revelation because questions will come up here. What about infants whose minds have not developed enough? What about small children? Or what about those with mental disabilities whose minds have not yet developed enough to even comprehend the world around them, to be able to understand general revelation? I believe, based on the rest of Scripture, that God in his mercy will save infants, that he will save these young children, okay? And we don't have time to go into all the reasons why, Lord willing, this week. I'll try to share a couple links on the website to go along with the sermon today that go into that in more depth. But for now, I just want to make that note that it does seem through the rest of Scripture that God somehow, not because they're good, okay, but in his mercy saves those who don't have minds to comprehend general revelation. We'll leave that aside for now. What I want you to do now is look back at verse 20 and we'll read through verse 25. What about those who do have minds to understand general revelation, which I would say is virtually everyone in this room outside of infants who we might be holding, okay? What about those people not just here but in other parts of the world? Paul says they're without excuse. Why? Look at verse 21. For although they knew God, listen to what Paul assumes. He assumes they know God. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were dark darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, verse 24, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Why? Because, it's a repeated word here, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who's blessed forever. Now remember verse 18. Paul says people suppress the truth because they know the truth. And here he's making it even more clear. Okay, What did they do? They exchanged something that they had, the glory of the immortal God and the knowledge of that. They exchanged that for something else. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for, the, for a lie. And they worship the creature rather than the creator. Guys, I hope we can see from this passage that everyone is rightly under God's judgment because of what we can know from creation. And then this would be in your outline as well. To put it simply, general revelation is enough to condemn. That is enough to rightly place all of us under God's judgment. It's enough to condemn us to hell. But then what did we see in passages like Acts 8 and Acts 10 with Cornelius and with the Ethiopian eunuch? Those God-fearers, they believed in God, did they not? And the eunuch in Acts 8, he's, even, he's got the Old Testament. He's reading from Isaiah, okay? At what point, though, do Cornelius and then the Ethiopian eunuch, at what point are they saved? Okay? Also, side note, Paul later on in Romans 9 is going to explain just how grieved he is for his fellow Jews. And the reason he's grieved for them, 
okay? And this is what he says. He has, quote, great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. That's what Paul says of his fellow Jewish brothers, okay? Why that anguish? Because he knows that unless these Jews do not trust in Jesus, that they will spend eternity separated from God. That's what he knows, okay? So, but how, and I want you to think about this, how can Paul say that good, God-fearing people stand condemned before God? Now, I don't want you to have to turn here. You, you always can if you'd like. But in 1 John chapter 2, this is what John says. Listen, just listen carefully. John says, 1 John 2, verse 22, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, John says, he who denies the Father and the Son. Now please listen super carefully to this. John says, No one who denies the Son has the Father. I'll read it again. No one who denies the Son has the Father, but whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Guys, if the Jewish people or anyone else, reject Jesus, that is a simultaneous rejection of the Father. Okay? Jesus made clear throughout his ministry, he says things like, he and the Father are one, is what Jesus says. So to trust in Jesus is to trust in the triune God of the Scriptures. To fail to trust in Jesus, to reject Jesus, is also a rejection of the triune God who has revealed himself in the Scriptures and who's made himself most fully known in the person of the Son. That's why Paul is grieved. So what I, hope, I hope you're seeing, guys, a generalized belief that there is a God, okay? That is not enough to save. That is not enough to save. Belief in God, generally speaking, does not save. Rather, trusting in Jesus, in the Son of God, that is what brings salvation. And the reason for that, guys, we, we won't go through too many more passages, but understand that salvation in the New Testament is centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Okay? When Cornelius is saved, he is saved in the name of Jesus. Same with Philip. Same with everybody else, which is why Acts 4.12 says, back a long time ago when we read it, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. So what do we see from these scriptures? General revelation is enough to condemn... But the next part of your outline would say, special revelation is required in order to be saved. Now, what do I mean by special revelation? All I'm referring to there is the reality that God has explicitly made himself known and explicitly made known how it is that people can be saved. He's made that known fully and finally in the person of Jesus. Okay? But then today, we would, how do we know about Jesus today? We know about him from his word, and the gospel is contained within the pages of the Bibles that you are holding that we are reading today. Okay? Special revelation, the gospel, knowledge of Christ is required to be saved. Now, with all this said, maybe about five or six more minutes, Lord willing, I want to ask you a very, like, kind of gut-level question. Now, even if we can say and prove from Romans 1 and other places that knowledge of God is not enough to be saved. Just general revelation, not enough to be saved. We need to hear the gospel to be saved. Honestly, how does that make you feel? And what I mean by that is, like when you consider the reality that people in other places around the world, like today, like we're, we're hearing the gospel by God's mercy today. 
And by God's mercy, probably most everybody in this room has probably heard the gospel more times than we can count in our lives, okay? But what about people in other nations who have never heard the gospel even once? Is there not a part of you that thinks that that's kind of unfair? That they would spend eternity apart from Christ? Because we've had all these chances to hear the good news of Jesus, okay? And I want to be as honest with you again as I can. That struck me for a very long time as unfair. And the first time that somebody explained Romans 1 to me, I didn't know what to think, quite frankly. That unsettled me. And the reason for that, again, is because it seemed to me that it was unfair. Listen to that word. Unfair that we would hear the gospel so many times, but others would not. But here's what I want you to consider. It seemed unfair to me, but how am I judging what's fair and not fair? Am I judging what's fair by my understanding of fairness or by what God would say is fair? Okay. And the reality is, I was judging what's fair based on my own understanding of fairness, frankly, a, a very American understanding of fairness, that would say, well, everyone deserves an equal opportunity to hear the gospel, and that's just how it should be. And so because I believed that, and because that was my understanding of fairness, you know what I assumed was true? I just simply assumed that my conception of fairness was right. But is that what we've seen in the scriptures? When you think of fairness, what do human beings actually deserve? Like, what do we deserve? We deserve death. We deserve hell. You don't have to turn here either, but if you wanted to, it's only two chapters ahead, real quick, to chapter 3, Romans chapter 3. What do human beings actually deserve? Listen to what Paul says in Romans 3. He begins in verse 9. Paul is writing as a Jew, and he says this. What then? Are we Jews any better off since we have the law? No, not at all, Paul says. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, are under sin. Romans 3, verse 10, Paul says this. As it's written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And we could keep reading, but by the time you get to the end of verse 23, here's Paul's conclusion. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then if we move forward to Romans 6 and looked at verse 23, you know what we would see? The wages of sin, and we're all sinners, is death. I kid you not, I'm 40 years old, and it took me until reading Romans 6.23 yesterday to really key in on that word wages. You know what wages are? Like if you have a job and you earn something, okay? The wages of sin is death. What I rightly deserve and earn because of my sin is death. So the reality is that while I thought it was unfair that everybody didn't have a chance to hear the gospel, the reality is that what would be fair would be that every single one of us spent eternity separated from God. God did not have to send Christ. He did not have to do that. He chose to in his mercy. But think about this. If God in his mercy had chose to make the good news uh, available to even one person throughout all of history to the entire human race, what would you say of God? He's gracious. He's merciful. He's compassionate. He's loving. Because he does not have to save even one person. But guys, he saved many more than one, many more than five, many more than a hundred. And he desires to save many, many, many more. Remember Matthew, Matthew 28. It's the last thing that I want to take you to today. It's not another scripture, but I want you to think on this. In light of the realities that we've talked about in the scriptures this morning, both from Acts 11 and from Romans 1. So 
The gospel is the good news, but I want you to think about this. It's something that really helped me in wrapping my mind around what we've talked about from Romans 1. If what I first believed about the fate of those who never heard the gospel were true, if it were true okay, that those who died without hearing the gospel automatically went to heaven, okay, or that they got a chance to repent of their sins after they died, am I really bringing good news to them when I go and proclaim the gospel? Think about this. Here's, here's what I mean by this. If people are either automatically saved or are going to get a chance to confess their sins after they die if they haven't heard the gospel in this life, okay? Yes. Most people have a chance to hear the gospel in this life with all the fleeting pleasures of sin and the distractions we have and everything, or after death, when are most people going to probably place their trust in Jesus? Probably when they're standing before God's throne, okay? I believed, again, that you were either automatically saved or that you had that chance, but that is not in the scriptures. That's not what the scriptures say, okay? If it did say that, I would argue, again, the gospel is not good news because I'm not bringing a message of salvation to people. I'm effectively bringing a message of condemnation because then it is that point, as soon as I get overseas, now they're on the hook. They would have been better off if I'd left them alone. But Jesus would not give the great commission if it were not good news that we are sharing. Does that, does that make sense? And so here's, in closing, here's my exhortation to you if you are a believer in Jesus Christ this morning in this room. Okay. Guys, please understand, and this is in your outline, the last point, that the need to share the gospel is urgent because we are not guaranteed another day of life. You're not, I'm not guaranteed another hour of life. Okay? And so if we're Christians here today, understand that people in other nations, in other cities, even right down the road from us, right down Ridgewood Drive, there are people who have not heard the gospel and who have not trusted in Jesus. And those people are presently separated from God. And unless and until they hear and believe the gospel, they will remain under God's judgment. And God's judgment is coming soon. It is coming quickly. On average, look this up last night, around 178,000 people die across the world on average every single day. That averages out to about 7,500 an hour and about 120 a minute. Now, I know that we don't have the ability as individuals to share the gospel with 178,000 people. Not even as a church do we have the ability to do that in any given day. But here's what we can do, and here's what we are responsible to do. If you are a follower of Christ here today, we are responsible for those who God places in our path whether that's our coworkers, our friends, our family members, our classmates. And so my encouragement, my exhortation to you this week is to consider today who you can talk to this week, okay, who is close to you but far from Jesus. Who can you share the gospel with this week? Who can you pray for this week? And then lastly, guys, if you are here today, by God's grace, you're here today, and you have not trusted in Jesus I plead with you to turn from your sin and to turn to Christ and to remind you that simply believing with your mind that there is a God, that is not enough to save. Guys, you could have even grown up in church and you could believe that Jesus is the true God, but simply acknowledging that with your mind, that does not bring about salvation, okay? The scriptures later on tell us that even the demons believe and they do what? They, they tremble. They shudder, okay? The demons have, frankly, probably a lot better theology than many of us in this room today. 
They know exactly who Jesus is. But are they saved? Are they reconciled to God? They're not. So how is it then, if you're an unbeliever here today, if you have not trusted in Jesus, how can you be saved? Turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. Not simply believing with your mind, but trusting in Christ. Placing your trust in him as your Savior and your Lord. And if you're unsure how to do that, after the service, I'll be in the back by the windows. Trevor and Aaron are here also. And frankly, probably most people in this room, if you're an unbeliever here, people would love to have the chance to talk to you about Jesus. And so I encourage you to seek us out after the service today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are not just the God of the Jews, but that you are the God of Gentiles also. We thank you that you are the one true God and that you have made yourself known through your son, Jesus. And Father, I pray sincerely for anyone who does not know you this morning in this room. I pray that they would trust in Jesus, that they would seek someone out to learn more about the gospel. And for those of us who are saved, Father, I pray that you would embolden us to share the gospel this week and that you might even call some of us out of this congregation to be willing to go and take the gospel to the nations. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.